Introducing a new association of churches in Mid-America, MARBAC. The Mid-America Reformed Baptist Association of Churches is a regional association for Reformed Baptist churches holding to the 1689 Confession of Faith with a goal of partnering together for the advance of the gospel and supporting and planting churches in the region. To learn more or find out how you can be involved, visit marbac.org. That's M-A-R-B-A-C dot org. Welcome to the Modern Mailman Podcast with Tom Hicks and John DeVito. Modern Mailman is a podcast on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We're hosting a weekly conversation on the law and the gospel so that church leaders and Christian lay people will rightly divide the word of truth. Tom, it's good to see you again. Great to see you too, John. And again, we have returning with us uh, our guest, John English Lee. Do you mind introducing him again for those who haven't uh, heard our previous episode? Yes, well, on this episode, we have the honor of having Dr. John English Lee with us, and he is the pastor of discipleship at Morning View Baptist Church, where he has served now for four years. Uh, He earned a Master of Divinity from Southern Seminary, also his PhD in Systematic and Historical Theology from Southern Seminary. Uh, He also teaches a course at CBTS on the Decalogue and the Sabbath in Redemptive History, He's a, uh, an ecclesial fellow with the Center for Pastor Theologians. Uh, John English and his wife, Rebecca, have three sons, Johnny, Jack, and Graham, and they have fostered many others. John English, it sure is great to have you back with us again, brother. Well, it's great to be here again. Good to talk to you guys. So as we continue to reflect on uh, progressive covenantalism, this uh, hermeneutic, this theological system, which has been called progressive covenantalism, uh, we have a few other questions for you, and just to get us started, how would you compare progressive covenantalism with the covenantalism of the 1689 Confession? Yeah, great question. So, I'll, I'll preface that question, that answer to that question, with when, the, when I first read Kingdom Through Covenant, which I was actually in a PhD seminar with Wellam when that book came out, and that was one of our textbooks. And so we went through it as a class. Um, I was kind of stunned that there was almost a total, in fact, there was a total absence of historical Baptist covenant theology in the work. I think so I saw th- it in a footnote. So, like a, like so there was a there was a footnote earlier on. <laughs> hold, hold on, the first the first volume, if I remember right, has no reference to it. Oh really? They have a second edition that came out. Uh, it came out in 2018, I think. Mm-hmm. So when I was preparing to teach my class at, at CBTS, I had to buy the second edition. I wanted to work with the best newest material, and so I bought it and I dug around to try and see. Oh, great! They reference um, they they reference uh, Pascal Deneau and uh, uh, recovering our covenantal heritage, edited by uh, Barcelos. And so I jump in there and I dig around, and there is one footnote on page eighty six <laughs> that says, and I'm charitably paraphrasing, it says, it's interesting that Baptists have a different view of covenant theology. There's one view that's, that is called uh, 1689 federalism. There's another one um, that's more similar to the Westminster view of, of covenant theology, period. Like that, that's, that's the sum total 
of the interaction with historical Baptist view of the covenant. Mm-hmm. And I think that that Gentry and Wellam, they're kind of, we've got the exegetical biblical theology guy. We've got uh, the systematic guy. They would really be served if there was a third guy that could help um, bring in some historical knowledge because a lot of what they're doing is not that new, to be honest, hermeneutically and typologically what they're doing with biblical theology. And they're saying that covenants progressively reveal across the canon, the nature of God, and they point forward to Christ and these types escalate across the canon. Like all of these things Baptists have done. This isn't Mm -hmm. new, a lot, a lot of this. And so I feel like they're moving as they get more and more refined, they're moving closer and closer to what the Baptists had already figured out Mm -hmm. 300 years Mm -hmm. ago. Um, So all of that to say, how do we compare what they're doing with 1689 um, confession with the second London Baptist confession? Well, they're, they're like we talked in the previous episode, their understanding of the law is a little muddied compared to what earlier um, Reformed theologians have done. So Reformed theologians will talk about the moral law of God as the unchanging bedrock of righteousness, of, of, of the moral standard that's the same across all the covenants, even before the fall. All of that moral law is the same. And then there's positive laws that are affixed to a particular covenant and they're temporary in duration and they can be done away with. Um, and then their understanding of the Mosaic law is also deficient, I think. They don't have the, the understanding of the threefold division of the law, of the Mosaic law, of moral, ceremonial, and civil. And so those would be some deficiencies. But uh, and when it comes to uh, a lot of their exegesis and a lot of their, um, their work on typology, uh, and how they see the old covenant pointing towards Christ. A lot of that's right in line with 1689 federalism. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's actually very helpful in a lot of regards. Um, so in the last episode, we talked about how they are shy about affirming explicitly the language of the covenant of works because they're uh, they're They don't want to get too specific on the content. So they don't want to say, Adam, you know, have the 10 commandments uh, written on his heart and he broke all the 10 commandments. But would you say that they are are clear on the promise of life for obedience and the curse of death for disobedience? So that it really is a covenant of works. Perfect, perpetual obedience is required for the inheritance of life eternal. Would you say yes. that? Yeah, I think they would. So then the next question is, what about the uh, eternal intra-Trinitarian covenant among Father, Son, and Spirit, this covenant of redemption where... Uh, Christ agrees among the persons of the Trinity to be incarnate and perfectly obey God's law where Adam failed so that so that Christ could not only pay the death penalty but earn the life blessing uh, and for his chosen people. Are they clear about that? They're, to my knowledge, I don't remember that referenced in print, but I have discussed with Wellam, and he does affirm a intertrinitarian covenant of redemption. Mm-hmm. In fact, our wor- our class, uh, our seminar on the work of Christ, the atonement, we read from several historical theologians, one of which was John Owen and his priestly his work on the priesthood of Christ that's in, I think, mm-hmm. volume one of his Hebrews commentary. And I mean, it was wonderful. And I remember in reading Progressive Covenantalism, or that that book, uh, that they Wellam or Wellam and Gentry were very strong on the definite atonement, very strong on yeah. the Christ 
died for, and that's that's now, of that course, is, Tom. Was that Progressive Covenantalism or King, Kingdom through Covenant? I'm sorry, it's it's Kingdom through Covenant. Yes, yeah. that's the one I was, I was thinking of. Yeah, and which is of course t- historically tied to the Covenant of Redemption, uh, the doctrine of definite atonement that Jesus you know, receive the sins of the elect and paid for them only for their redemption. Mm. So, yeah. So, so what about uh, any, anything else you want to say about that? Or the next question is going to be on the covenant of grace <laughs> and what they think that is or how they would you what they would say about this terminology. Cause I suspect there would be some differences when it comes to at least how they speak of the covenant of grace. Yeah. I, I don't, yeah, I don't. Th- I don't know that there is one uniform set of language about the overarching covenant of grace. I think they would all affirm that the um, progressively unfolding covenants covenants across the canon all point forward to the covenant of grace. And so, some of them might say that the new covenant and the covenant of grace are synonymous; that that's mm-hmm. the same thing, and that all all the saints in the Old Testament were saved. Uh, kind of proleptically looking forward to the work that would be done by Christ to come. Um, and that all begins with the, the uh, Proto-Euangelion in, uh, in Genesis 3, or um, the, the kind of the first reference towards Christ being the one that would come and uh, crush the head of the serpent. Um, I'm, I don't know that there is a single metanarrative framework that they would all affirm. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, I know I'm probing here for different, see what you know, see if you, if you recall in your studies of this. Um, but there's, there's, you know, dispensationalists and historic covenant theologians have differed widely on the role of the spirit, for example. You know, d- did the Old Testament believers, you know, were they indwelt by the Holy Spirit or, you know, or were they not? Were they void of the spirit? They were saved by two persons of the Trinity, but the third person was just not part of their salvation in the Old Testament until yeah. we come to the new. I mean, how, how would they speak of this? Are you familiar with, can you remember? I, I, don't, I, I don't think that that issue is addressed in print, to mm-hmm. my knowledge. I don't, I don't recall that. Um, I'm pretty sure that Wellam would say that the Holy Spirit's work is absolutely necessary mm-hmm. uh, in the Old Covenant um, because anthropologically, we have continuity with fallen Adam across, across the canon. So Genesis 3 on, there is anthropological continuity uh, before conversion. Since yeah. pa- pagans today are in one spiritually the same morally corrupt pagans that they were old in the Old Covenant. And so just like the Holy Spirit has to work to illumine and regenerate and convert and convict and do all that now, he has to do he had to do it in the Old Covenant as well. And I think the difference would be the degree of the Holy Spirit's ongoing work. Mm-hmm to use crass language, um, mm-hmm. how f- we're full of the Holy Spirit today. Were they full of him in the old covenant? It'd be a difference of quantity of his work. Um, others okay. would, others would not want to be as explicit. They would say, yeah. no, they, they really want to emphasize the, the big paradigm shifting nature of acts two and Pentecost. And so they would have, closer to a dispensational view of the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament. Um, so, I, okay. yeah, it's, it's not a monolithic framework in that regard, on that particular issue. 
Right. Yeah, and I just ask that because it's it, it it has to do with the covenant of grace, obviously. So we're still answering that first question on the relationship between the covenantalism of the 1689 and uh, progressive covenantal theology. But thank you, brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in thinking then about this, uh, would you would you consider progressive covenantalism as a form of uh, antinomianism? Uh, why or uh, why not? Uh, you know, we've we've had some of these discussions about its relationship to the law in the last episode, but, but what about the charge of antinomianism? Uh, well, I think a lot of that de- depends upon uh, your definition of antinomianism. So mm-hmm. th- historically uh, antinomians, I think would be um, much more radically anti-law in a way that is can undermine the gospel entirely. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that progressive covenantalism has to take you that way. Now, you, you could perhaps start down that road and really start pushing things the wrong way and end up where some of the older New Covenant guys did. And then I think, but at that point, if by the time you reach that point, I think you have long since abandoned progressive covenantalism and have moved into the really wonky edge of new covenant theology that, that has gone off the rails. So I wouldn't say it is a form of antinomianism um, though. It has, um, it can set you up for an antinomian view of the Sabbath for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I don't, in one sense, I don't care whether you call Sunday the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's day. I don't think there's necessary sin in that. If he wants to be, a strong Lord's Day, Lord's Day observer, and that's what he thinks is the moral ought for believers, then practically he's very close to where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but the system allows you to be antinomian in your Sabbath view, um, in, the, in your practical application of the Sabbath. And, and I think that's, that's to the detriment uh, not only of, of individuals, but as to our congregations mm-hmm. where it can really minimize the corporate gathering of, of God's people, the importance of that, the, um, the spiritual blessing that it is to cease from our, um, from our labors. So, so to a practical example, I was at Southern and the progressive covenantalism is in the water there. It was, it was just taught like it, there, there wasn't, it was just assumed that this is the correct and biblical view. There wasn't even a debate. And a lot, a lot of the guys that were in the PhD program um, would work 40 hour overnight shifts at UPS and then would come in and take a full load of, of theology classes. And they're trying to preach on the weekends whenever they can and write their papers and still be fathers and husbands. And there was, it was almost a badge of courage. By the time they got to the Thanksgiving break, they had bronchitis and they, and they were like, you know, on the verge of death and, and they were working <laughs> themselves to death. And they were doing this because their system allows them to do that and says, you're free in Christ to do that. Hmm. Work yourself to death because you're free in Christ. And their view, you know, there was kind of a, a, a system that allowed them to have a deficient view of the, of the Lord's day of the Christian Sabbath. And then they had this kind of Messiah complex where they had to, you had, they had to get out on the, out on the field. They had to get in the churches. And so they're blowing through seminary as fast as they could and it really leads to burnout. And so that's, you know, kind of how I think the antinomian tendency 
of the fourth commandment, just one illustration of how I think that can have a deficient uh, and unhelpful observance of the Lord's day, which kind of can neglect our anthropology theologically. So, it, you know, it kind of by over spiritualizing the nature of the fourth commandment and how we, how Christ is our rest. Um, but by exclusively spiritualizing that understanding it kind of minimizes the physicality of our being. We are spiritual creatures that need to rest and we can quickly be deluded by our pride to think that we are the Messiah and we have to get out and work and we have to do this and we have to do that. When a lot of what the the Sabbath commands in the old Testament were about was saying, stop because you're not God. You are not the one Mm -hmm. who brought you out of Egypt. You are not the one who created the world. You can stop. Um, so, well, and, and, and you know, not only may it have anthropological implications, but uh, it, it could have ecclesiological implications if uh, it could cause to a neglect of, uh, again, not only of my soul as an image bearer, uh, but of my receiving the means of grace on the Lord's day uh, through the gathered worship. Uh, of, of not seeing the centrality then of corporate worship in the believer's life and, and therefore of the importance of the um, men whom uh, God has called to lead through that corporate worship, through the, the ministry of the word and, and the observance of the sacraments. And, and, and uh, you know, so, I mean, one, one of the observances I, I saw at Southern, I don't know how far reaching it was. Uh, I didn't live on campus and uh, other things, but was a, a neglect of, again, uh, we, you know, weekly attendance in, in, in church. Uh, and, and certainly the Christian life is, is more than that, but, but you could see a neglect of kind of that weekly pattern uh, through, through again, a system that, that doesn't necessarily see that importance. Right. Absolutely. And, and not merely the neglect of the Lord's day, because a lot of guys would check their boxes and they, they would go to Sunday morning, mm-hmm. but then they would spend the whole rest of Sunday afternoon every week. That was their homework time, their right. homework catch up time. <clears throat> yeah. And so they're, they're not observing the day in as much as we've spiritualized the nature of salvation of, mm. of Christ's work, Christ being our rest. And so I can rest in Christ thus observing the spiritual view of the Lord of the, of the fourth commandment that they have and still work my fingers to the bone. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and that bifurcation is unhelpful and, and detrimental. And it's the system doesn't necessitate that trajectory, but it doesn't prevent that trajectory. Mm. Well, Um, you know, just, just thinking about what you've said, um, if I'm resting in Christ, uh, and in, obviously, in one sense, I am right. As if I'm a believer, but but if, if I'm resting in Christ, and, and that's what this means, then I'm resting in Christ Monday through Saturday, right? Right. Oh, so, really? Absolutely. And, and while while I'm working, while I'm carrying out those uh, vocations of of you know my job and and other things, and so if that's my conception of rest, uh, then you're right. Um, then then I could do whatever I'm doing Monday through. Saturday on Sunday uh, on the Lord's day, uh, maybe as long as you, as you say, I get in my you know, morning worship service that I'm supposed to do as a Christian. Right. Yeah. Right. And to push it to its, 
logical end, uh, like mentioned in the, the last episode, the you could faithfully every year, every Easter, go to church and you have not forsaken the assembly of Hebrews 10. Um, and then every other 51 of the Sundays, I can go rest in Christ while I'm playing the back nine. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, spiritually, if there's if if I'm resting in Christ Monday through Saturday, like you're saying, then there's nothing special about the Lord's Day other than there happens to be church on that day. Though it's totally arbitrary as to what day we have to be on. Mm-hmm. Well, that's they, that's what I was going to ask you. So Sunday is not necessarily the Lord's Day. Oh no, no. no. Well, they yeah. would say yes. It is ex- exegetically. It is. We know that that's the Lord's Day of Rome, Rev- Revelation one ten, but there's no ethical mandate that church wow. has to be held on the Lord's Day. We have example, so and we think could, it's, we it's could just prudent. Co- we could covenant to meet Thursday night, yeah, and that would be totally I, faithful. I, th- I think that um, I think that you see a lot of that when when uh, these guys come out of seminary and they've heard all this and they go to the mission field. Like it's much much easier if you're in an in a uh, Islamic country yeah. to have church on Friday. Why not? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when everybody's off. That's when they, everybody else is meeting. Why don't we have our religious day when they do? Or and in Israel on the sab on the on Saturday. On Saturday, right, right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, there's nothing in that system that that prevents that. They would now m- the best of them would say, listen, all of church history, almost all of church history, militates against that. It's not a good idea. Jesus was raised on the Lord day. It's prudent, but I think if you really push them, there's there's no um, there's nothing in their system that necessitates that because there's nothing tied mm-hmm. to the fourth commandment in a physical way or moral um, way. It's not ethically. It's not an ethical imperative. Right, and yeah, and so it's not an ethical imperative. It's the the Lord's day is not the Christian Sabbath to them. Mm-hmm. Because the Sabbath is old, old Sabbath is Old Testament. It's gone, gone. Uh, we are Lord's Day people, mm-hmm. and so the best of them do have a strong view of the Lord's Day, thankfully. Um, but I don't think their system necessitates that. I think that's a that's a problem. All right, one more question before we ask you resources that you'd recommend. Um, okay. Just I know we've talked about this progressive covenantalism over two episodes now. So what would you say if you could succinctly kind of summarize, you know, in a, in a, in a compact fashion, what are the strengths of this system? What are the dangers of it? Okay. Strengths of it are um, a, a lot of pretty good exegesis and a lot of emphasis on hermeneutics and on biblical theology, especially typology, as there's types and shadows in the Old Covenant, and they escalate across the canon, and there's correspondence between the type and the anti-type, and a lot of the, a lot of good things. And New Testament priority. And New Testament priority. Which That's is, true. Yeah. They, they do emphasize that. So, so in one sense, they have a lot of the tools um, – in the tool bag that are better than the dispensational tool bag or the classical uh, Westminster covenant theology. Um, I think, um, I think those are strengths. I think that's, that's very good. I think um, they, the Christocentric nature of their emphases is very clear. Mm -hmm. They see all of the types, everything pointing to Jesus. Amen. And, And even on the fourth commandment, um, to chase a rabbit for a minute, 
I agree with them that Christ is the anti-type of mm-hmm. all of the Sabbath foreshadowing. Yeah. But I think that that is not done away with in his first coming like they do. I think mm-hmm. there's a rest to come that's coming back with his second coming. And so that's a, that's one interpretive difference. Uh, dangers. So we talked about their over, over-spiritualizing the fourth commandment and the dangers that can come with that. I think they're, there's some muddied thought or at least not clearly yet articulated thought surrounding more um, systematic categories of the law, um, natural law, moral law, uh, divisions within the uh, mosaic law. I, I'd like, I'd love to see further theological reflection, particularly I'd love to see Steve Wellam um, talk more about these categories as it relates to the atonement. Uh, because he is really good on the atonement. Um, let's see. I think those are the two the two main dangers: just uh, lack of clarity about the law in general, and then particularly the fourth commandment. Amen. Mm. And and we all know how central the uh, fourth commandment is to uh, the Christian life and to the health of the soul. And, and so this is no minor difference. Uh, uh, as some might as some might suggest, uh, but but this really does come down to, um, you know, God's ordained means of how we live the Christian life and His guide towards uh, holiness and sanctification. Uh, so I appreciate that, brother. Well, with that in mind, what what would be some resources you'd recommend for those who want to uh, engage in further study? Of course, besides your uh, CBTS seminary class, which I know delves into these uh, subjects more thoroughly. Yeah, so other than Gentry and Wellam's Kingdom Through Covenant, they also have the edited, uh, Steve Wellam's edited volume called Progressive Covenantalism. Um, those are the kind of doorways into that view to, to read um, the more standard Reformed view from a Baptist perspective. Um, Barcella, Richard Barcellus wrote Getting the Garden Right, um, which talks a lot about uh, the covenant of works and particularly the fourth commandment and hermeneutics and consistent application of those hermeneutics. So a lot of the issue that we would have with the kingdom through co- the progressive covenantalists are, we agree that the, on these hermeneutical principles, but they're just not consistent in application. We would say they're not applying them rightly. Um, and I think Barcellus gets at a lot of that and does faithfully apply those same interpretive principles consistently and gets at a um, the where the second London lands. Also, as it relates to the law, Philip Ross uh, wrote a book called From the Finger of God, which is um, a defense of the threefold division of the law. I'm looking for mm-hmm. it. Philip S. Ross, From the Finger of God, is published by Mentor. Mentor Press, it's very helpful on that particular issue. And he kind of, there's a, there's a lot of things that attach to that issue that are direct implications from that issue. And so he has to try and knock down all of those little, it's like playing theological whack-a-mole. When you, when you tinker with that particular issue, it makes a lot of shockwaves in other theological categories. And mm. I think he does a good job of bringing up a lot of those issues and, tr- and addressing them. Um, so Philip Ross from the finger of God is, is very good. Uh, I recommend that to you. 
Great. Well, again, brother, we want to thank you for joining us and, and at least beginning having discussions over progressive covenantalism. We hope that it'll continue being a refinement uh, to, to us and, and hopefully in further discussions with those who, who may be uh, sympathetic uh, with that view. But uh, th- So thank you for joining us, brother. And I want to thank everyone for listening to the Modern Man podcast and the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. If you'd like to know more about CBTS, please visit us online at cbtseminary.org. That's cbtseminary.org. John English, that was great. Thank you, brother. Really appreciate yeah. it. I think it hopefully thank be helpful you. to folks. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad to do it. Uh, hopefully right. it wasn't too muddled. It was clear in my head, so hopefully it came no, out it was, that way. That was a good conversation. <laughs> That's Excellent. right. That's what this is for.